Today we sit down with our first humanities interviewee, Dr. Anindya Richadri. We discuss his work here in the School of English at St. Andrews, subjectivity in the sciences, and we get a bit meta and talk about his podcast. Enjoy listening. You're listening to Insight, the University of St. Andrews Student Physics Society's podcast. I'm your host, Samuel Avery. Join us as we journey into the lives of St. Andrews academics, discovering their passions, inspirations, and motivations. So today on Insight, we're welcoming our first humanities interviewee, uh, Dr. India Richadri from the School of English here in St. Andrews. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for asking me. So could you tell us a bit about what you do here in St. Andrews, please? Certainly. So I'm a lecturer in the School of English, um, and I teach across all all four levels of undergraduate, master's, and, and PhD supervision. Uh, in terms of research, my research cuts across a number of different strands. Um, I've done some research on the 1947 India-Pakistan partition. Um, I've done some research on diasporic South Asian life and culture, uh, principally using the frame of nostalgia. Uh, I work on Marxism, I work on on literary critical theory, uh, and a number of other things. Okay, and what path kind of led you to your position here today? Um, I did my PhD in Cardiff, at Cardiff University, and then I started a postdoc in London at, at University College London. Uh, and after at the end of the first year of a three-year postdoc, I interviewed for a job uh, in, in the English department here in, in the School of English in, in St. Andrews. Um, I didn't get the job, but I managed to get a, a an, an add-on to my postdoc. Uh, so I came here initially for a two-year postdoc, uh, plus a two-year lectureship, which then became permanent. Fantastic. And could you tell us a bit more about your research? So what does it entail? What does it involve you doing? Um, it changes from project to project. Um, the The most varied set of um, what one might call research methods that I've I've uh, employed has been for the partition project, uh, where I did a, a kind of more, what we might call a more conventional English literature cultural studies approach, which involves reading novels, reading poetry, watching movies. Uh, but on top of that, I added an oral history element, which involved finding people who have memories of, of partition. In most cases, direct first-hand memory. In some cases, inherited memory across generations and interviewed them to collect those memories. Uh, the idea of the project was to then compare uh, the, the similarities and the differences between what we might call public memory and private memory. Uh, oral history interviews being private memory and the literature and the cinema being public memory. On other projects, I've... Um, I study I, I, I study culture and that that in in its widest possible form. So I, I write about literature, I write about cinema, I write about computer games, um, music videos, advertising. Okay, so there's a real range of things that you yes. can get up to in your research. Um, for the, this oral history component, how much was that weighted versus other components of your project? Because surely it takes a lot more effort it to go and interview than yes. it does to sit yes, that, down for a book. That's very true. Um, it's, it is, I would say, half at least, if not more, oral history, and then maybe 
40%, maybe 60-40 uh, in terms of percentage. Uh, uh, but you're right, the oral history interviews take a lot more time, a lot more effort. Um, finding people isn't always easy, it involves travel. Um, I've interviewed all across Britain, I've interviewed in India and in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So what's your favourite thing in or about your field of research then? I love the variety, I love the fact that that everything is connected to everything, right? And I mean, like every everything you love, there's there's a... There's a flip side to it that it can it can be annoying sometimes, but everything's work, right? You you watch a movie and at the end of the day you're watching TV program. It's it's your your thinking brain is always on, and um, the the multiple diverse ways in which various cultural forces, be it imperialism, racism, capitalism, feminism, whatever they might be. Um, work in through these narratives of culture. That 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 fascinates me. I find that endlessly fascinating. Okay. So I study physics, and if physics could be said to be about probing how the universe works, how would you describe English? Um, um, well, strictly speaking, English as a discipline, and my position within English is is slightly at an at an angle. Uh, uh, but strictly sp- speaking. Uh, in English, in an English literature department, we are interested in how literature produced in English, either original or translation, what what these stories mean, how language is used in order to tell stories, whether that is from the earliest period in English and Anglo-Saxon through to contemporary literature. And in our in our department, we study the whole range. In my own work, I do that but I also add other things um, as I mentioned before I had the, the interviews I had uh, cinema and so on I guess the best way I have to explain what I think I'm doing in my research is a line from a, a book called Mythologies by the French philosopher theorist Roland Barthes uh, Mythologies is a is a very short book it's a selection of essays uh, one page two page three page essays um, almost like a newspaper column uh, which is about, he has one on advertising, he has one on photography, he has one on wrestling, you know, all sorts of different things. And in the preface to this book, he says that what he's setting out to do is to explore the ways that history and culture, or history and nature is the word he uses, history and nature are, are continually confounded or continually confused so that... Um, Things that are human, man-made, cultural, historical, political, are being presented as natural, are being presented as eternal and unchanging. And he says that in doing that, what he's trying to do is expose the ideological abuse that lies behind what goes without saying. And I I love that, that line. I love the idea of what I'm doing is exposing assumptions, cultural assumptions. Where have our ideas come from? And that could be something as basic as gender identity. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? Is it always self-evidently clear? Has it always meant the same thing? Uh, The answer to both of those questions is no, by the way. Um, Through to what are our memories? How do we remember the past? How, How do we negotiate the past? How do we tell stories? How do we make sense of our lives? How do we give... A, a narrative, a story to our life. 
uh, and what are the what what political work is being done in that process so it's how we, how we communicate through the medium of language in english yes except it is more than that because communicate involves uh, or su- at least suggests that it is about individual choice and i don't think it necessarily is it's about interrogating but also being susceptible to inherited prejudices biases assumptions systemic forces uh structural forces uh what w- at at one point was in the news became quite uh, uh well remembered or described as institutional racism if you remember when the Met- metropolitan police were accused of being institutionally racist how can organizations be inst- have institutional politics uh that is conveyed through cultural texts be it literature cinema advertising tv okay so as as part of your your research you're looking at kind of this history and are you as interested in hard facts or does the nature of kind of your research and analysis mean that remembered or perceived events that aren't accurate are as important uh, uh absolutely the short answer to this question is yes uh the slightly longer more complicated answer would be that the gap between hard facts and not facts are probably more blurred than we might think um i think a lot of the things this is what i was uh, saying earlier on with the quote from bart about mm. confusing the the historical or the cultural with the natural um uh what in in everyday parlance we think of as facts are probably less factual than we might imagine and what interests me is less whether so when i'm doing an interview well when someone tells me a particular story i'm less interested in whether that really happened in exactly the way that it was described what interests me is the the work the political work that memory is doing in the present okay and in your research you've mentioned how nostalgia is kind of affecting this retelling yes. so how, do you find that because of the work you've done that um in nostalgia does that affect the way that you approach relaying information to other people um maybe not specifically nostalgia but the idea that the 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 experience of conducting these interviews recognizing that everybody has a story to tell and everybody's story matters and the story matters by the way in a in a way that is not dependent on on truth value they don't matter because they are true or false they matter because they matter to that person uh and that awareness has i think affected the way i relay i communicate my my research because the audience i'm communicating it to whether it is an academic audience whether it's my students when i'm teaching whether it's a uh, a public audience i've done a little bit of comedy based on research whether it's a comedy audience the audience members are full of people who have their own stories uh, and those stories may well be relevant to my work so quite often at the end of a research talk or a lecture or a, a gig someone will come up to me and tell me a story about something that happened to them and that's relevant for me and my work so i guess that awareness has affected the way i'm initiating conversations rather than communicating something Okay. And for your interviews you've mentioned that you kind of travel the length and breadth of the land. Um do you feel it's important to do these interviews so. in person? I think so. Apart from everything else on a very very fundamental level the amount of information that 
can be conveyed through body language. Um, I'll give you one very, very brief example. Uh, I was interviewing this this lady in London. Uh, she was born into a Hindu family. Uh, she married into a Muslim family. Uh, the marriage failed uh, subsequently and uh, she left her husband, but she retained a Muslim identity. I was talking to her in my interview about her religious identity and she spoke about how she calls herself a Muslim when uh, if something, if she's going through a bad time and she, she needs to pray, then she will pray to Allah. She, she talks about how she used to fast. She doesn't fast any longer because she's, she's not very well physically, but she, kept, she kept, keeps, keeps fasting when she can. And then she says, I, I audio record all my interviews, and if you listen to the audio, on the audio it says, in her words, she says, the days I do this, those days I don't pray. Now, what she's what she's saying when she's what she's doing that isn't on the audio when she says this is she's pointing to the glass of wine that she's got in her hand. And I love that complexity. I love that the that the messiness with which we identify ourselves, so that it is perfectly possible for someone to talk about the faith that is really important to them while she's holding a glass of wine in her hand. And of course, she knows she's being recorded, right? So she doesn't, perhaps she doesn't want to mention the fact that she's got a glass of wine in her hand because she knows she's being recorded. But she still wants to make the point that that is part of her identity as well. And all of that nuance, you know, you you could, and, and I have written an academic article about that moment, um, but all of that nuance would be missed if it wasn't a face-to-face interview. So there really is so much more to be gained. Absolutely. And what makes someone of interest to your work? What would your ideal interviewee be, if there is such a thing? Um, I guess those two questions are slightly different. Everyone's of interest, uh, depending on the project I'm doing. So if I'm for the partition project, any my, my selection criteria, in so far as I had one, was do you have something to say about partition and are you happy for me to speak to you? And that was it. Which is not quite the same as an ideal interviewee. Mm-hmm. So so everyone is a potential interviewee. Everyone is of, is potentially of interest. Uh, ideal interviewee is someone who's good at telling stories, uh, who has that undefinable quality of being able to remember what happened and convey the, the depths of the memory. And I guess if you are being really selfish... Uh, which in some ways research is, then the ideal interviewee is one who's who hits some of the themes that I'm interested in my work. So in my book, I have chapters on uh, trains, for example, or I have chapters on uh, separated families. And an interviewee who has something to say about those particular themes is of more interest to me uh, mm. in, in a selfish way. So there's there's no perfect formula, there's no but perfect really formula. there's yes. kind of potential in everyone yes. sort of thing. Um, so we're going to transition a bit and go a bit more meta because you run your own podcast I called do. State of the Theory. So could you tell us a bit kind of overview of that quickly? Yes. So um, State of the Theory is a podcast I've been running for uh, some time now. It's It's been gone into sort of a bearance a bit as, as uh, we've both got busy. Uh, I run it with a friend and colleague, Dr. Hannah Fitzpatrick, uh, who's in the geography department at the University of Edinburgh. Um it's it's a podcast that started out of uh, 
in-car conversation. So Hannah and I used to drive into, when she was at St. Andrews, we'd drive into work together uh, and we'd have chats in the car. And that developed into this podcast. Um, we we describe it as uh, sort of the confluence between philosophy, politics and popular culture. So if there is a particular moment in popular culture that feels like it deserves to be thought about in a in a theoretical academically um, nuanced manner where we feel we have something to say uh, then we then we do episodes about it we've done episodes about uh, the Oscars ceremony for example uh, but we've also done more political episodes so we've done episodes about Brexit we've done episodes about um, uh, nationalism we've done episodes about Trump obviously um, so on and so forth Okay, and do you feel there's any particular reason that you decided to start this with a scientist rather than another humanities colleague, for instance? Um, I think Hannah would describe her as a humanities person. She's a geographer, but she's a human geographer. Uh, we share lots of interests. Uh, she works on partition as well. She works on part- geographies of partition. Uh, and we are both interested in this sort of loose amorphous field called critical theory, which is a, a particular form of... Uh, mainly French philosophy. Um, so we, it, it came out of this shared interest and a shared uh, desire to try to explain things that are happening around us in, a, in, a, in, in terms of society, culture, politics. So it wasn't a, a conscious decision that you set out looking for it? No, no, no. It, okay. it, was, it came out of friendships and, and conversations. Mm. Which is a good way to start anything. Um, And you mentioned that you cover quite a lot of politics, philosophy and pop culture. Do you, how do you approach researching those topics or do they follow on from things that you maybe have recently researched or read? Yeah, I mean, it's the, most of our episodes aren't connected directly to uh, the, the, the centrality of our research. Uh, It's more connected to what I was saying earlier about the the gap between work and life fusing, where everything becomes work. So, um, you know, some of the figures, people, theorists, philosophers, we are both interested in, uh, Karl Marx, Michel Foucault, uh, Jacques Derrida, and so on and so forth, they have things to say about what is happening in the world today. So it came out of that interest, which which is to say, this thing that is happening on the news or this music video that has become popular, what might these theorists have to say about this? What would happen if we collided uh, this body of fairly dense, difficult academic intellectual theory with this, this world of politics, popular culture, and how might it allow for different views? So that's where it came from. It, it isn't directly connected to, you know, a, uh, the article we are writing or the book we are writing at that moment, but it's more a, a, a critical worldview that we both share. So again, it's sort of a, a natural thing by yes. going through life and being aware I think of so. the ability to analyse. Yes. Um, do you ever find that you and your co-host uh, approach topics differently because of your different trainings? And Does that lead to friction it or does, is it complementary? I think it's more complementary. I don't think it leads to friction. Uh, we, there have been moments when we've disagreed, um, I mentioned uh, an episode on nationalism. There was an episode on on whether nationalism, whether there is room for left wing nationalism, where Anna and I explicitly have different views. Uh, I think that 
partly because in our in our world of the our particular part of the the humanities world we are not interested or less interested in the possibilities of a correct answer uh we don't believe such a thing is necessarily possible so the disagreements don't lead to friction in the same way um we have a shared set of values and a shared set of interests uh which allows us to approach topics from slightly different points of view but those those sh- the the differences come just as much from the fact that i am male and south asian and british and hana is white and female and and, and american as it does from anything else okay and you mentioned just there that um it's a, sub- a subjective topic english and i coming from a, a sciences background there's a big emphasis on correct answers so does this subjectivity ever bother you or is it something that endeared you to english oh no it's absolutely endeared me to english i i am suspicious of objectivity i don't believe it's possible in other words i don't believe you can separate out the person that you are from the work that you do um your your life experiences whatever they might be will have a role to play in in whatever work you do whether it's academic work whether it's humanities sciences or if you are if you sitting in an office you know it, you bring the the entirety of who you are to your computer or to your lab or to your library desk um and i think that there is something dare i say it almost either sort of naive intellectually dishonest to pretend otherwise um and i find that useful and liberating and affirming that what i am what i am saying i am saying from this position that i'm occupying in the world and if i occupied a different position then the conclusions i would draw for many any particular set of experiments or questions or uh, investigations would be different so you think this objectivity is a bit of a, a pretense then and how how does that affect the way that you view science then for instance is it a kind of a, a species wide bias that affects what we do i think there is i think there is there are ways to interrogate your bias there are ways to and i i know many of my scientist friends do that i don't think it is possible to eradicate bias uh yes and i think that uh, speaking as someone who has no scientific knowledge whatsoever i so i'll give you one very specific example i was for for a completely different um project i was reading um a scientific article in psychology about uh gender differences sex differences to do with um anger and aggression right so the do are men more naturally angry are women more naturally restrained were some of the questions that this this article was trying to answer and there was a reference in the article to the experiment where it was observed that the women were less likely to lose control and the men were more likely to lose control and as i was reading that i was like well who's doing the observations what are the what are the criteria for maintaining control and losing control and where do those criteria come from 
So the humanities critical theory brain of mine is always looking for those assumptions and what, again, the ideological abuse that lies behind what goes without saying. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, this is very interesting to me coming from a physics background and sure. a maths background. So do you believe that applies across all of science then? Or do you believe that when you get into maths, which is built up on axioms, um, which need to be rigorously proved before you can make the next step, do you believe that even that is something that... I know it is questioned, no, uh, but well, is it something that shouldn't be necessarily... So I'm married to a statistician. You can imagine this, this, has, okay. has, con- this is a conversation I've had quite a lot. Do I believe that facts exist? Absolutely. You know, do I believe that 2 plus 2 is 4? Yes, 2 plus 2 is 4. But any fact that we might bring meaning to is, is a process. The, the process of bringing meaning to it is a process that happens in culture. That's not to say that it is true or not true. That is just to say that one cannot separate out the the way I always the way I think of it is sort of wearing a pair of glasses all the time, right? Whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm seeing, those cultural assumptions are always there, on a very fundamental level. They define who I am. They define how I speak to the person. How I speak to the person who's sitting next to me. They they define what kind of what I'm eating tonight. What 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 I buy when I go to the supermarket. And all of that is connected. And it all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. It's not, though, that you're going out in the street and saying, no, I'm not going to listen to this expert. No. no, not at all. No, not at yeah. all. But, and I, I don't think, I don't think experts, when they're doing their job properly, would be doing, would be saying, you have to listen to the, me because I'm an expert. I think when experts are doing their job properly, they'd be saying, this is the evidence. This is an argument. And to say that all knowledge is subjective isn't to say that everything is relative and everything is equally true. Mm-hmm. Those two things aren't the same. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I believe that all knowledge is subjective, but I don't believe that everything is relative and every opinion is equally valid. Okay. So, um, moving on to something else. Um, what's the subject that you struggled with when you were an undergraduate student then? Um, I guess the one I struggled with most as an undergraduate student was uh, Old English, Anglo-Saxon. Um, it, it, I, I didn't warm to it immediately. It was a, compulsor- it, it was a compulsory module in, in our first year. Um, part of what we had to do in the exam was... Uh, there are two long poems in Anglo-Saxon, one called The Wanderer and one called The Dream of the Rood. Uh, and uh, we were we knew we were going to be asked to translate a ten-line section from one of the two poems. Uh, the section could be from, from anywhere. Uh, and like many of my f- friends at the time, um, I memorized the whole translation. So I just had to recognize where it came from. And then, then after that, it was just, just from memory. Uh, which I'm not proud of, um, <laughs> but yeah, I struggled with Old English. But it's, if it works, it works. <laughs> so what stereotypes do you come up against as a humanities academic? And do you think that any of them carry merits or are there any that you really take issue with? Um, I guess stereotypes would be, um, you know, being in, living in a rarefied ivory world, that not 
no practical application. Um, um, and that sort of relative facts don't matter, anything goes, you're making it up as you go along. Those are, I think those are the, the two main stereotypes that, that um, I'm aware of. The Like all stereotypes, it's not that they don't have some kernel of something in, in them, but I think they both largely misrepresent uh, the work in the humanities. I think um, the not having practical uh, application, as I, I hope I've, I've shown today, everything around us is, is uh, a legitimate object of study for me. So it absolutely is rooted in, in, in an everyday life. Um, and for that matter, a lot of, I mean, I don't know if as a theoretical physicist you are particularly invested in demonstrating practical application of your work. And, and you shouldn't be, right? Um, who knows what practical applications of any work uh, is. Um, in terms of the the problem of facts versus opinions or absolute truth versus relative truth, um, I, I will... I will defend uh, the my critical humanities position of that that all knowledge is subjective, uh, while retaining the importance of expertise, while also at the same time critiquing the forces that affect what kind of a person gets to be an expert. I guess is one way of putting it, right? So the the forces, the barriers that exist in terms of gender and race and class and caste and sexuality and so on, which mean that a certain kind of person is more likely to become an expert than others. Um, so I guess it's, it's complex. <laughs> um, what's something that you miss from your student days? Um... I was thinking this would be less complex, but you seem a bit stumped. I am a bit stumped because <laughs> I, I, I don't miss a lot. That's not to say I don't, I didn't enjoy my time as a student. I loved my time as a student, and I think that played a big role in my decision to become an academic. Uh, but because I am an academic and because I work in in a university, I feel like I am able to carry on a kind of studenty lifestyle more so than if I had a proper mm -hmm. job. Um, so, proper job. <laughs> a proper job. Um, so, you know, the, the things that I used to do in terms of staying up too late and getting too drunk and having conversations about everything and nothing, you know, like the, the 3 a.m. conversation after too many glasses of wine about how we do, how do we know whether we really even exist. Uh, are, that's sort of my day job at the moment as well. <laughs> um, I, th there are sort of pangs of nostalgia when when I find myself in a student union building and, you know, the student societies being involved in that side of student life uh, is something that I miss. But in terms of studying, trying to understand, talking to lots and lots of very enthusiastic, very intelligent people about things that we both enjoy, uh, that's something that has carried through from as an undergraduate postgrad to, to now. So there's, there's things to miss, but there's things that you've actually been able to yeah. take with you successfully. So what are some hobbies that you get to up to when you're not at work then? Um, I, I'm, get, I've, I've, I'm getting into cycling. That's a new thing for me. I haven't, uh, I, I 
haven't been on a bike for some time and I'm I'm starting that. Um I enjoy cooking. I enjoy reading, but it's not really a hobby anymore. It's work. <laughs> um I like going for walks. Um yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Um so we're going to move on to quick fire questions. Sure. So um answer these a, we'll go through these a bit quicker, but you can take some time to elaborate. Um so favorite music genre and favorite song? Favorites uh too many music genres to choose from. I like rock, I like folk, I like lots. Uh just because it's the first song that comes to mind for the moment, I'll say uh Motorcycle Emptiness by Manic Street Preachers. Uh which is a brilliant song. favorite non-academic book um i'm not doing this in a very quick fire way i've just <laughs> realized um in our world the gap between academic and non-academic is blurred as i've said multiple times um the book that has made the non-fiction book that has meant the most to me uh is uh the communist manifesto uh by marx and engels um uh, i don't think you'd describe it as an academic book certainly uh but it has been hugely influential in the world it has for 50 odd pages that it is it has some incredible ideas that are still so so relevant today and it has been life changing for me so it's a yes. lot of kind of impact per page but yes yes um i think you've mentioned at some point or another that you do video games so do i do do video games favorite video game or a video game franchise i do have a favorite video game um i uh well i've two the last of us which is a brilliant post apocalyptic game and assassin's creed uh assassin's creed the one that the one that i i love the most is syndicate uh which is set in victorian london uh where not coincidentally you, you there's their missions to do with Karl Marx so of course I I love that <laughs> um are you someone who picks other people up on their grammar no i don't think so uh not unless i'm asked to do so um no i don't think i do yes yes <laughs> if you're marking someone's essay yes, you will yeah, yeah yeah um what's a snack food that you can live without chocolate any any particular type Well, I'm I'm on a uh healthy diet phase at the moment, so I'm having to be very careful about what uh, about what I'm going to put the calories towards. I'm going through a green green and black chocolate at the moment because in terms of pleasure per calorie that's quite high. <laughs> well, we won't linger on that topic too long. Um tea, coffee or any other drink? What what coffee. would you choose? Coffee. coffee. Um what's your favorite beach in St. Andrews? Um That's a good question. Castle uh, Sands, West Sands or East Sands? I think it will be East Sands. East Sands. Any East particular Sands. reason why? Um I don't know. I like the West Sands is too beachy, I think. I mean East <laughs> East Sands has the pier and yeah. the buildings kind of. It's, yeah. it's got a lot going for it. Um <laughs> would you describe yourself as a morning person or a night owl? Night night owl. <laughs> I don't do mornings. Mornings are bad. Very much agree. 
So um, to kind of finish off our interview, and you can take, take some more time over this question, what's something that you think people should try to bear in mind more when they communicate with others, and whether that's via speech or writing or any other medium? Um, finding why what you have to say should be of interest to the audience. Uh, not speaking down to an audience, not patronizing an audience, whether it's undergraduates, kids, uh, general public, your colleagues, whatever. Um, and and what will what a particular audience will find of interest in any particular topic is something you, you have to work to, to, to think about and, and to predict, and you can't always predict it. But there is usually something of interest to, to, in any topic, to a particular audience. And one way of getting to it is to think about why you got interested in, in it in the first place. I think when we, especially when we are trying to convey our research to other people, because we've been interested in it for, in many cases, many, many years, uh, we've sort of lost that initial spark of enthusiasm or it has been transferred into something else and we are more interested in the uh, finer detail of it. But if we can step back from that and think about what what about that particular thing grabbed us in the first place, I think we'll be much better at engaging the audience. Lovely. So it's kind of unlocking it. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you very much, thank you. Dr. Anilia Richardry. Thank you so much for your questions. My pleasure. You've been listening to Insight, the University of St. Andrews Student Physics Society's podcast. I was your host, Samuel Avery. Thanks to all the wonderful academics of St. Andrews. Join us in the future as we learn more of the people making our education. This podcast was produced by myself and our publicity officer, Connor McBride. To find out more about the Physics Society and what we do, please find us on Facebook or Google St. Andrew's Physics Society for our website. Goodbye.